Jesus saves. Mormon Mental Health is a production of Mormon Stories Podcast and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards supporting its listeners. To support the podcast, please consider a donation today at mormonmentalhealth.org. And thanks for listening. Jordan Compass came for me. Hello and welcome to another episode of Mormon Mental Health. Today I'm very pleased to have with us Sharon Groves. She um, previously served as managing editor for Feminist Studies, which is an interdisciplinary scholarly journal housed at the University of Maryland, where she also taught courses in English literature. Uh, literature and Social Change and, and Women's Studies. She is a lay leader at All Souls Church Unitarian, where she has chaired the Committee on Ministry and worked extensively on issues of racial justice, community voting rights, and neighborhood outreach. Sharon received her PhD in English Literature from the University of Maryland in 2000, and since then has engaged in extensive coursework in theology and sexuality from Wesley Theological Seminary and the Chicago Theological Seminary. Welcome to the program, Sharon. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, the main reason why I'm having you on is that you are currently um, a part of the HRC team, which is the, and, and I guess I want you to tell us about that and what that is and, and what your role is. Sure. So the Human Rights Campaign is an organization that has been around for over 30 years now. And got started really as a lobbying organization to lobby on behalf of the rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. Uh, it's since that time it's grown substantially, and it includes uh, it's about 150 of us now that are on staff, and then many more that are in the field. Uh, and we have a a really robust kind of political lobbying effort, but we also have a field effort that, that works in pretty much all of the states. Um, we don't have organizers on the ground in every state, but we've got, we, we, we keep track of what's happening in all 50 states and are engaged in campaigns for marriage equality, uh, the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, uh, issues around religious liberty that are, that are bubbling up now hate crimes legislation in the past, so anything that has to do with uh, with LGBT folk. And then in addition to that, we have a educational wing, which is where I'm housed. And that includes programs that are, re that are really about changing the hearts and minds of people, um, about, and, and, and helping people to understand what life is like for LG, LGBT, which is just shorthand for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people. Uh, those that work is takes. We we do that work with uh, with schools, with hospitals, uh, in on our campuses. Uh, we have a program called All Children, All Family, which is helping people make decisions, helping people think about adoption, and 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 changing the laws around um, who can adopt in this country and who can foster care. And then the program that I run, which is called the Religion and Faith Program. 
And our work is largely working with religious communities, both those that are supportive, mobilizing voices to, to be even more supportive and more active uh, as a voice for, for equality, and then working with those that are conflicted and need religious reasons and, 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 and a conversation around religion, that they're, they're wrestling with the issue of, of religion and LGBT people. And, and so we sort of help to foster conversations with those folks. Okay, wonderful. So before I get to asking you more then about these programs, can you share with us a little bit more about your own personal and professional history that, that brings you to your current position with Human Rights Campaign? Sure. possibly your own faith kind of upbringing or, or things of that nature? Sure. It's, it's a bit of an, a funny story. Um, so I uh, did not grow up in a religious family. I grew up in a, actually a very secular household that where the idea of both re- religious people were, were seen as deeply problematic and scary and not oftentimes not that bright. It was really like a really unexamined prejudice around religion in my family. And uh, and equally, there was an unexamined country that leaned more uh, politically to the right. So whole swaths of the South and parts of the West and parts of the Midwest were seen as areas that it just wasn't all that safe for people that were educated and liberal to live in. It was a, um, so that there was a lot of prejudice around that, that just went unexamined in my family. So I need to, so I start with that. So I did not think that religion really was going to play any role in my life. Um, and I studied to be, to teach English literature. I have a doctorate in English, as you said, and I had this kind of crisis of faith and it happened around to, and I, I call it a crisis of faith now, although I didn't have that language then. It happened around 2001, right after September 11th. And I didn't know anybody personally that had died during that time, but it was such a dramatic period for our country. And living in Washington, D.C., you felt it immediately. And I had been doing some activist organizing around peace work before that. And there was a kind of shrillness that was emerging in the, in the way in which people in the communities that I was doing activist work were talking at that point. And it was as if, you know, like that um, there was an assumption that that the U.S. was going to get that that George Bush was going to get it wrong and that we and that that the U.S. kind of deserved what had happened. And there was not the space to mourn. And that coupled with a kind of personal crisis around that had to do with the you know, the, the kind of work life I was doing, it didn't quite feel right. I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be an academic. I didn't, not, nothing quite made sense to me. And I stumbled into a church, which was a Unitarian church. Um, and it, this was right after 9-11. And I just, I, I, as I think about it now, it really was a kind of calling. I felt immediately at home. I felt immediately like these were the people that I wanted to be with people that were actually kind of embracing one another in a deep sense of caring about the well-being of, of one another. Um, it was really a, a, like I, I experienced what it meant 
to say when we say love thy neighbor as thyself. There was that expression in this congregation. And then there was immediately after after the service, there were these justice oriented activities people could get engaged in. Things like uh, one of the first things that I did through that church was to organize um, to support Muslims who were being persecuted at that time and were vandalized. So a whole group of, of us, would, the interfaith group, would gather together and help to support the uh, Muslim folks. So I really knew that, that this was the sense of, I, I felt like this is where I wanted to, to be and where I felt most at home, was in a religious space where there was a sense of what was, what was of deepest value to me was actually and and to us as a community was was stretched out into the larger world and put into into practice. So you had to so so there was that doubleness of going deep into your own spiritual life and then putting that into practice in a community. And it was that kind of work that I knew I wanted to do. And while I am a lesbian woman, I wasn't really thinking that much about, at that time, around doing LGBT organizing. Um, and really there had, wasn't all that much that was out there in this space. It was, it, there, there was a sense when, when I started this work in 2005 that religion was seen as very much the uh, anti-LGBT issues. And it was, while there were congregations and some denominations like the one that I was in, that were doing, had been doing really uh, beautiful uh, work for quite some time, it wasn't really recognized publicly. And the discourse was re really was that faith was, that, that people of faith, particularly Christians, were by definition antagonistic to the LGBT community. So this idea of kind of organizing people of faith and being engaged in the faith world from a pro-LGBT perspective was relatively new. So this a job kind of popped open, and there was uh, my predecessor, Harry Knox, was a, a founding director, and he wanted somebody with an academic background that could kind of help develop resources for for this work. So uh, he, a friend of mine, introduced us to each other. We hit it off, and I stumbled into the job. Um, it feels now like a calling, but at the time, I had, didn't have a clue what I was getting into. So it was kind of an interesting uh, beginning. That's, that's really neat. So you mentioned... Um, working with with different faith communities as far as part of the education and the outreach that you're you're trying to do and and you mentioned that some seem very open to this type of work some are more you know middle of the ground and some are anti and more antagonistic have you had any opportunities to work directly with the with the mormon church either in formal or informal settings Yes, and it's been some of the most fascinating work, I have to say, that I've done. So, like, and I'll just sort of start with True Confessions. Um, you know, when I started this work, I didn't have, I didn't have a strong sense of deep respect for, the, for Mormons and for the LDS community. That's completely changed since I've done this. It really has. But my sense when I began it was 
you know, those, those are those odd people with the funny underwear and the weird handshakes, right? And, and uh, that they all kind of very much like those people that live, that were sort of cult-like, that lived in these, these funny places. I did not have any sense of, of the depth and the breadth of the community and the depth of the theology. Um, and so, so at any rate, so that's where I, that was like my, like the, the very low level of analysis that I had kind of coming in. And again, the first couple of years when we did this work, it really was around kind of mobilizing those communities, those kind of progressive Christian and Jewish communities that were already with us, but just didn't have a platform to speak. Increasingly, as I've been doing this work, we have been engaged in communities where the denominational structure has not supported full equality, but yet where there are people within that are pushing the envelope and trying to push the community forward. So the LDS community definitely falls into that category. Uh, I've met with some leaders in the in the hierarchy, but not many. I have been to, to Salt Lake City a couple of times. Um, mostly, though, what has been that inspired me and has been the 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 real the the kind of my understanding of uh, Mormon people and of the faith has come through lay people who have wrestled with either a son or a daughter who's gay, lesbian, transgender. Uh, or who are LGBT themselves. And what's been very profound for me has been seeing how deeply meaningful the faith actually is in the lives of of LGBT people and family members. So that there is, you get the sense of a kind of a deep wound and a deep pain of trying to to wrestle with um, who they love or who they are and what they believe. And increasingly what I'm finding is that people are unwilling to give up any of any peace. At one point, I think there was a sense like that, that people felt that if they were going to be LDS, they either had to be closeted or they, um, or they just had to live a very compartmentalized life. Um, I think or they had to leave the church altogether. That they couldn't. They, they like like they couldn't be both. What we're seeing now is more and more people that are saying that that's a false bargain, and they're not buying it, and they're really speaking out as as LDS people, but also as supportive of LGBT folk as well. And it's been fascinating to watch that. Um, just just this last weekend. We, I, I made a phone call in, in Arizona to an amazing, uh, am, amazing couple, um, Meg Abdu and, and Jake Abdu, who are, are Mormon parents of a gay son. And they pulled together this beautiful letter for, that was a pro-LGBT letter that that opposed the religious liberty bill that was facing the governor in Arizona that thankfully she vetoed. Uh, but the letter was very, but they, the, the letter was, was, was gorgeous and, and spoke to what religious liberty really is and how, how Mormons have suffered for their religious liberty. Um, and that the, these bills that are moving forward that are saying that supporting LGBT, uh, uh, 
people in in businesses is that that they're they're saying this is not a religious liberty issue, and it's being falsely used that way. At any rate, I was able to to just make a phone call, and within two days, we had 120 signatures from Mormons, straight, most of them, I think, straight, and LGBT as well. I mean, and that's an astonishing feat, just to sort of to get that many folks that are willing to sign on and say, you know, we're not going to support um, a bill that basically discriminates against gay people that uh, any longer. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. I think that there is a, a real shift that's happening within the LDS community among the laity, like the, the ordinary people that are just saying we've had enough, but we're not willing to give up our faith and we're not willing to um, give up our sons and daughters and, the, and, and family members and those that we love as well. And it's, it's really a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, there's there's been somewhat of an interesting kind of just journey, I think, as an LDS community on this whole issue. I remember when I was in college at Brigham Young University, there was still really the, um, I guess, guideline for those who were LGBT to just, well, especially the, the homosexual, um, so gays and lesbians, to marry in a heterosexual marriage. There was still kind of that advice being given at the time that I was going to college, which was, I guess, what, 20, 20 years ago now or so. And, and we've seen a shift in that, you know, where that is no longer really the, the protocol. And, um, and of course, my, my work as a therapist started with many couples who were now in their 40s or 50s and had, you know, had followed that advice and now were really struggling in their marriages and, and many of them divorcing. Um, and then we've had this mormonandgays.org, which has come out, which, you know, very clearly defines some new ideas that, again, 20 years ago were not coming from the pulpit, which is this, that being uh, homosexual is not in of itself a sin, but it's still very clear on that homosexual behavior is. And so there's this expectation for celibacy. Um, and then you have many messages from the pulpit coming, you know, around non-bullying stances, you know, being kind, being loving to our um, gay and lesbian brothers and sisters. And at the same time, we have these, you know, kind of political stances that, ch- that the church has taken against anti-gay marriage. So you can see how there's just a lot of um, flux and push and, you know, and, and interesting kind of um, processes around this issue. And I just wondered if you could speak to some of these things that I'm mentioning. Yeah, I think that, that, the LDS Church is—it's—it's it's a barometer, in a sense, for a kind of conversation that I think is happening in many faith traditions around the country, where we're really at this process. It feels like a journey process to us, and I think one of the things that's so important to know, and, and I'm sure you, you know this as a therapist, is that people never stay stagnant. So when something, be, when a seed begins to get planted, you begin to see shifts happening all over the place. I think it's a little bit too soon to say that the church is kind of on the road to equality. I think you've seen it kind of move in one direction 
seemingly move in one direction to a, 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 a better place and then and then react and move back another direction. So, the, you know, I think that the, that the church was really burnt for its support, um, its heavy, heavy support of Prop 8. And they don't want to make that kind of, of political calculation again. They see the damage that that did within the community. And people have, in droves, have left the, the, the church because of it. Um, and yet, at the same time, they're not, they're, there's not a sense of a kind of, of a, a willingness to fully, into, well, there's certainly not a willingness to fully embrace LGBT people, but it's even hard to kind of see that there, to, to be able to say, you know, true progress is happening. But what I can say is that it just, what, what, what does seem to be the case is that there is this massive instability and we don't see consistency across the board. So there are churches in some parts of the country and, 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 you know, there's one in Washington, DC that is very, that's quite welcoming as, you know, as far as it can go and still kind of, uh, uh, live into the, 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 to, to be truly an LDS church, but it's quite welcoming um, of, of LGBT people. And then you have other places where it's still, people get excommunicated all the time. And so it's just, it's, it is this very odd kind of, you don't quite know where you stand. And I think we're, what we're seeing in some of this, this stuff that's emerging on religious liberty is a, a church that's that that's in flux. It's just trying to find its way and doesn't quite quite know where it, where it's going to land on this. So, I I mean where I take where where I take hope is in the notion that I know it's true that when when that things do not stay the same and when seeds get planted, something grows. But we can't predict when the growth will happen or what it will look like. Or, or you know what the damage will be around the way, and there's been quite a lot of damage. Um, and then the the other thing I would say, which is just to kind of reiterate what I was saying before, is that that while the hierarchy in the LDS Church, very much like the Roman Catholic Church, sometimes seems to have a deaf ear to to what's happening, the rumblings that are happening in the community, that can't last forever. And the and we're seeing a really a growing um and and uh confident LDS community that is saying like we you know we are the church and and we are not going to give up our faith, and we're not going to give up the people that we love. Can you speak a little bit to the definition of religious liberty and how you would define that in, in the context of exactly what you were speaking of with yeah. in Arizona, but here in Kansas where I live, we're having a lot of the same conversations. Right. Yes, you are right now. And uh, um, yes, that's true. Um, so... Across the country, we have seen the term religious liberty used uh, by, by certain groups um, 
often cloaked in religion, but not necessarily religious groups, that are defining, are saying that that um, if somebody wants to say uh, sell, if if a gay couple is going to get married, that they should not, that a florist, a florist should not have to um, be obliged to sell that gay couple flowers, even though they have a public shop because it goes against their religious beliefs. So it's kind of like taking, claiming religious beliefs in the commercial and public sector. Um, That's what we're seeing. That's how these laws are getting defined in many, many places. So it's giving individuals the sort of the right to choose not to have to serve somebody um, because they're, they're LGBT um, and to be able to claim their religious liberty as the reason for them, frankly, to discriminate. What I think, what many folks are saying, and and uh, these LDS leaders in in Arizona have done so beautifully, is to say this is not what religious liberty was ever intended to be. That religious liberty at its core is about protecting minority religions from being able to worship. And nobody knows better than Mormons the kind of of struggle it has been to be able to actually worship peacefully. And so when you say, but but that's about worship, and it's not about what's it's not about an individual decision in the public sector, right? It's a it's there is a real difference between between a sacred space and a commercial space. So I think when when um, LDS, well, not L, not even LDS, when when people claim religious liberty to be able to say I'm not going to to make a wedding cake, even though I have a shop that serves everybody to a gay couple, or I'm not going to sell flowers or whatever that might be, that they're basically that that's a very, very dangerous argument to make. Um, not only does it hurt, hurt gay people, but it also, it says that one particular is going to supersede all others. There are many people out there, myself included, that see the, 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 the um, struggle for LGBT rights on all levels as an as a faithful act that we see that 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 loving our neighbor as ourselves means making sure that um, that LGBT people have full rights in this country just like it would mean making sure that uh, that uh, all, people of all races have rights in this country, and that that women um, are treated equally under the law. Under the law, that that is a for many of us, that's a faith expression. Um, and many people do not believe that scripture that that a particular brand of religion that says it's a that that uh, that it is against their faith to sell somebody flowers. That 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 feels like a, that feels like imposing one definition of religion, and that we need to be really careful about that, and that that that's a sort of that's a scary place to go, because really the the strength of this country and is the diversity of our faiths, and it's and we need to be about protecting 
all of our religious beliefs. And that's really the definition, that, as I see, of religious liberty. And we have to be really careful not to be imposing, using this term religious liberty to just give, give credibility to discrimination. So many of the traditional arguments that I hear from um, not only um, more observant Mormon folk, but just Christian people in general are these ideas that, you know, God has spoken, God doesn't change. Um, heterosexuality is unnatural. It isn't conducive to having children. And therefore, these are not things that would fall under chaste, chaste ways of using sexuality. And therefore, it's sinful and abhorrent. And, you know, we can love people all day long. But when it comes right down to it, God would not approve of, of homosexual behavior. So these are the types of, you know, kind of steeped in religious belief um, ideologies that I think get in the way of possibly more either doctrinal change or um, changes within communities themselves. So as you're working with, with I'm sure, several faith communities that, that hold these types of beliefs, what what's your approach and what are some ways that we could maybe complicate those ideas or reframe them to help us with this concept of change that you're talking about? Yeah. So there's, you know, there's about um, eight passages in the in the in the Bible that get used pretty regularly. Actually, probably only about four of them get used regularly to kind of. It, Sometimes they get referred to as the clobber text, as shorthand. That they're sort of they're the they're um, they're the Leviticus. Uh, a man shall not that not uh, lie with another man. It's an abomination. Um, it's Sodom and Gomorrah, and, kind of, and 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 a number of others, and they get used over and over and over again as kind of um, a, a, as the evidence, quote unquote, evidence that um, homosexuality is is an abomination and some and sinful right um and i think there's been lots of different approaches to how to handle this um there's been a number of books that have come out uh that that offer a much um, a different reading of of um all of those texts actually and sort of point to a much more nuanced understanding there's ways of talking about you know that that even the sort of concept of homosexuality itself is really a 19th century invention. Um, and the idea of loving relationships between two men or two women is not something that, um, that people were really thinking about in the same way in um, ancient times. So there's, there's, this, like, there's a historical context that you can give. But what I often say is that that's not where we want to start with any conversation with somebody that is is struggling with their faith and with with um, somebody they know that's 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 LGBT. That really, I think the place to start is actually reading the reading the text together. One thing that I like to do is to ask people what their favorite passage is, um, where, where they go for for solace and inspiration, and what or, or questions like what does God mean to them, um, or how you know how how does how do they live a faithful life on a daily basis? How is God um, uh, 
how, how does God live through them in in the choices that they make? And 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 to kind of take that conversation away from um, a, a sort of debate mode uh, between you know one particular interpretation and another, and really get to what is the what what is our common. What, 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 where is the place of common ground in this conversation? And I think that from there, we can begin to have a much deeper, richer conversation. And it's a dialogue that often takes years. It's not something that just kind of like that there's a sort of a, 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 a magic bullet or the perfect key that you can just turn and people will shift completely. But it requires, I think... Um, people understanding and and getting exposed to LGBT people and their lives and their struggles. Um, And it requires a really honest to goodness conversation with people about what what we believe, what is what what is the core tenet of our faith? Where do we come back to? Where do we go again and again and again for inspiration, for comfort um, as we live our lives? And then after that work has been done and those relationships have been established, then it's possible, I think, to really move into a deeper conversation about faith. And what I try to do is to assure people, um, and I believe this at the, the, the sort of the bottom of my, of my heart and kind of intellectually that as well, that, that at the core of every faith tradition, there are, there, there is, um, a tenant around deep love and about seeing God as 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 a as a deep loving um, entity or spirit or however however you sort of imagine God, but that love is at the core of that, and that we can find ways to tap into that and to really look at one another differently. And that that I think it's really relational work in the end of the day, um, and and I think you know. Um, Harvey Milk, I think, kind of got it right when he said, come out, come out, uh, you know, that 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 there is something around people actually being brave enough to tell their stories. Um, and this is true for allies as well as for LGBT folk to just be able to to really speak their truth, talk about what's going on, talk about what their life is like talk about their struggles and when people can see when when we can see each other's full humanity it becomes so much more difficult to say to sort of impose a kind of arbitrary doctrine that says this is wrong and that's kind of the that that's that's the kind of approach that we try to take and then look at when we look at the the depth and breadth of our religious traditions people are really do not have to make these kind of draconian measures to sort of just to assume that somehow they are going to that they're going to go to hell if they simply uh, love somebody that is that's gay or lesbian or transgender or support somebody that's gay or lesbian or transgender that and and I think um just sort of finally I think that this uh Pope Francis has done a good service for us recently with this notion of who am I to judge because that can also that's um that's a good starting place is the sense that you know we we don't know all of the answers we don't have to have it all worked out to be able to actually uh, be in relationship with somebody that's different than us. So when it comes to um, 
again to the to the LDS kind of more doctrinal stances on this. I I do see it as progress that we no longer see um, homosexuality as a sin in of itself, right? That that that's not something that's expected to change. Like you know, back in the seventies and eighties, there was quite a bit of reparative therapy and things of that nature that were happening at Brigham Young and many other places around the country. So we've seen some changes in that regard. Um, but at the same time, there's this this expectation or this um, request for those who find themselves in this situation to be celibate in order to be uh, in line with the worthiness factor of, of the LDS expectations. So can you speak to maybe some of the mental health and even spiritual health consequences of putting that type of um, expectation on our on our young people in particular? Yes. Well, and let me just say quickly, I'm so glad that you're doing the kind of work that you are doing, because I think that the, that there is so much work that needs to be done um, around this question of, of spiritual and emotional trauma that has emerged um, um, out of the kind of these, these sort of, I, I, out of the kind of the, 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 the very sort of strict interpretive positions that the, that the church has taken. Um, and the, that work is just beginning to kind of to, to bubble up. But we know that there is deep, deep trauma that has happened to, um, to young people. Uh, you know, when you look at the, the sort of the, the suicides that we have seen in the last couple of years of young people who were um, outed in really unfortunate ways. Um, the, the number of people that, uh, I mean, I think that it's, it's over 60% of transgender people um, think, uh, contemplate suicide in their lives. I mean, the, the numbers are really high around, around the kind of desperation that the LGBT community feels um, because often because of the attitudes that have come out of their faith traditions that they that have have been instilled in them, uh, and so it is definitely progress. It's definitely progress to say that um, to not call uh, LGBT people sinful. Um, it is, but it's it's also kind of cruel to say that your identity is not a sin but you can't live out of your, your life as a fully sexual human being. There's something very cruel in that. Um, and it, it, it seems like a kind of almost a sort of schizophrenia in a way that um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, and, and, and I think that, that, that while it is progress to move, to, to move the needle a little bit further, it's also a kind of, it, it, it also, um, it also causes its own damage because uh, what does it mean to say to somebody that like you, you are not sinful, but yet if you do this, that is a sin. But, you know, it's just it doesn't it's like I, I can imagine that that it's very just very disconcerting for a young person to try to navigate how to live a, a, a life um that is integrated where their faith and their emotional well-being and their sexual health are integrated together. Um, there's also, I think, I, I think that our religious communities have really, uh, 
really fallen behind where they need to be on just an overarching conversation about sexuality, period, whatever kind of sexuality. We just don't, we're uncomfortable about talking about sexuality and that's a real problem. And, you know, like when you see pastor after pastor in religious scandals, um, the kind of scandal that we have seen, the pedophilia scandal in the, in the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, all of these, like you see the symptoms of a culture that is not dealing with in healthy ways with, with people as sexual beings. And we need to have those conversations and we need to have those conversations in our congregations and develop a mature sexual ethics that is informed by our faith, but not kind of this weird sort of imposition of uh, a kind of um, uh, unexamined doctrine that we kind of impose on people. We really need to have from the ground up deep conversations about sexuality that's informed by the actual lives of of people. Yeah, and I, I would fully support that statement. Um, and I, you know, and again, just to kind of share some of the thoughts that, or some of the comments that I get often on my, on my um, blogs or my podcasts that push back, it's just this idea that, well, sex is not necessary for survival and we're all expected to do hard things, you know, as far as sacrificing to be, um, to be made worthy for, you know, to be, come worthy enough to go back to God, you know, however you want to frame that. And, um, and I think to your point, there's not just cruelty there, but there's, um, which I, you know, again, I think is unintentional and yet, um, there's this expectation that somehow, even though we are, we know that we're made as relational creatures that somehow we need to reject a very, um, integral part of ourselves. Um, so, there are people that have made a conscious decision in their lives to, to be celibate and it's an informed decision and it is, and, and I have, and I've witnessed and know people that have made that decision that are beautiful and loving human beings. But I think when this, this, there's this notion when that is forced on you, that this is like, this is, this is, the suffering that you that you must go through and it will make you stronger and and it will make it it, it will sort of retool you to be more godly i don't get it i just don't get it i don't think sexual repression makes us better people i don't think it makes us better i don't think it makes us um i don't think it improves our relationship with god I think it creates a whole lot of barriers. And I think that that repression often shows up in really deep and damaging ways that kind of reemerges somewhere else. And so, again, there are when when celibacy is a is a conscious choice that's made by mature adults that are are really looking at what makes the most what what their options are and and that they make this choice um, um, in a fully conscious, non-oppressive way, I I get that and and really deeply respect it. 
But I don't, but that's not the same thing as people that are told that they have to tune out part of who they are simply because it doesn't fit with some doctrinal notion that, frankly, I think is in most cases unexamined. So one one subject that I really haven't brought to my podcast yet as far as education or even bringing it to the table is this um, issue of transgender. So I'm hoping that you can educate us on what that means and what that's about. And I think this is a this is a an issue that often when we speak to LGBT issues, we're, we're focused more on the the first part of that versus the latter part. And I think that that's a conversation that we need to have. Sure. So. I think that there's when when speaking about transgender when let me let me start that again transgender is a kind of blanket term for a lot of of for 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 people that they do not identify with the gender that they were assigned at their birth so it could mean that it it's men who were born genetically female, but their identity, their understanding of themselves has always been male. Or females that have been born genetically male, but their identity has always been as female. And then there are variations, there are variations under that. Um, but, But there is a sense in our culture that our gender falls into a kind of binary of you are either you are you you are born male and so you identify as male or you're born female and you identify as female and there is so much i think there's so much diversity and fluidity in how all of us experience our gender um that if 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 you thought if you stopped and thought about that for a little bit um i think it's uh, you can begin to understand something of what the experience is of transgender people in this country. So one of the exercises that I often like to do with folks is to is to ask people to think about a time in their life when they acted in a way that went against the gender that the, the, the sort of the gender codes they were given when they were a young person. Like, so for me, when I was 10 years old, I remember this so vividly and I had taken my shirt off to ride my bike. And this was, this was even before puberty. And I, but I had done that the year before and it was just kind of taken for granted. And that was great. That was fine. And then I remember like the sort of anxiety and fury that my mother had that I had taken my shirt off because that just wasn't, I was not performing my gender in the way that I was supposed to as a young girl. And so that, that stayed with me that I learned really at, at that age that I needed to, that, that, it, that a young girl always wore her shirt, right? Like there, there was this very, very clear distinction between my brother and me. And all of us have, I think, some kind of experience of that where we, where we have this moment where we, we, get, we have that aha moment and it usually comes with deep embarrassment because we broke out of some kind of uh, norm that we were supposed to have. So that's, there are these, these, there are these um, 
gender categories that all of us are sort of forced into, and they don't often make a whole lot of sense for many people. And then on top of that, you have people that have very, that, that, that understand themselves understanding that they are a different gender than that than the one that they were assigned at their birth and those people we refer to as transgender people um and there are sometimes transgender people will go through some surgical procedures and sometimes they don't they they do very little it's very it's quite varied um there are transgender people that are gay and lesbian and there are transgender people that are straight so sexual orientation and and uh gender identity are are don't they they don't go hand in hand it's that, that experience can be very very varied um and and transgender people that are bisexual um as well so um it's a very it's a very hard road for transgender people right now there's not a whole lot of understanding of what the the science and the psychology in the sort of the the popular imagination and oftentimes there is a the the, the if the discrimination is bad for lesbian and gay folks it's 10 time tenfold for many transgender people um particularly I think we're seeing it most like now I won't want to say mostly but when you look at the the lived experience of transgender people of color poor transgender people um transgender people that are brought up or living in areas where there are not there're not strong communities or a lot of resources that they, it's a very very hard hard life um things are beginning to change but it's a, it's it's quite difficult uh the the conversations that are happening in faith communities are just beginning to happen um and uh in in many communities uh and it's 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 very much kind of it's it's similar in many ways to the kind of coming out experience that um gays and lesbians have had to have in their faith communities um different in other ways one of the ways in which i think transgender issues emerge differently in 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 some faith communities is that for some people not for all but for some people the desire is if is to be able to um to fully experience life in the gender that they know themselves to be which is counter to the gender of their birth So that means that they may not identify if they are um a transgender man for instance they may not identify as much as the transgender piece but will identify as a man. So that that becomes a bit of a complication I think in terms of like when when we try to make kind of parallels with gays and lesbians because gay and lesbian people uh, the the experience is as identifying as gay and lesbian. whereas for transgender people it, that there's a it's a there's a bit more fluidity around you know like where 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 do you want to where do you place your the your emphasis on the on being a transgender person or on being the um if uh, if you're a male to female being female you know so it's 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 it gets complicated yeah and i i would imagine too that um You know, it's interesting the story that you share about yourself as a as a young girl with this kind of gender issue with your mom and 
you said at the very beginning that you did not grow up in a religious household. So it's interesting how gender is almost its own, like even in non-religious homes, obviously that's it's very well defined in our culture, right? As far as uh, we can be, be very religious as yeah. far as gender roles are concerned. Right. And so, um, question that we ask, right? The very first question that people ask when somebody is born is, are they a boy or a girl? And then we have, you know, it's getting that there is a bit more gender neutrality in terms of uh, clothing. But but, you know, like the first thing, if, if it's a boy, they get blue or green. If it's a girl, the colors tend to be pink or yellow or pastels. Right. So there you have all of these ways in which we we code gender in very, very rigid terms. So to break out of that of out of that gender paradigm is hugely problematic for people. It, it, it like raises all sorts of flags for people. And, they, and the processing of what that means is incredibly complicated. And so the reactions to people that are breaking like, um, what, what we tend to refer to as this gender binary and, are, and, and um, are expressing their experience of themselves as, as it is true to them, that can that that can be um, really really complicated. As Mormons, we have gender very much being part of our, you know, doctrine of our individual selves. You know, so in other words, this idea that we um, were a gender before we came to this world, and we will continue to be a gender after this world. So it's yeah. um, very yeah. much part of our theology, and I think very difficult for those who are LDS to kind of grapple with this issue. At the same time, we understand that we are part of a mortal existence where things happen that are less than ideal, right? So if somebody is born with a birth defect or if somebody is born with other issues, we see the possibility for that being righted at some point in the future, even if it's in the afterlife. So is there anything theologically there that, that could help us as an LDS community to grapple with, um, not that I want to call transgender a birth defect, but do you know what I'm saying? One of the things that I think is important to look at, um, which has been fascinating, is the intersex community. So what, the inner, what people that are, are defined as intersex, it simply just means that they've, they have um, both male and female uh, um, characteristics, right? And so you can have um, um, a young girl or like that's that's sort of that's defined as a young girl that will have a penis. Right. And so you could have these kind of complicated and 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 unusual sort of um, uh, characteristics that 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 are part of um, what 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 people grow up with. Um and so this notion that we are like purely defined as male or female or that somehow that the body that we are born in is the body that we truly are, it doesn't, you know, you can look, that, that doesn't make sense and it doesn't even make sense in nature. You know, we know that um, there are all sorts of different kinds of, of, um, um, of, of body types that emerge that have male and female combinations and, and people like this notion that we are, that, that gender is a, is something that is a stagnant thing is just not true. Um, and we, we have, there's all these kind of, there's, there's just a very wide diversity. And you know, my guess is that God has a 
much um, better understanding of diverse human uh, gender than we assume. And I, I think probably some of the most distressed people that have called me just, you know, just, you can just see their level of anxiety are, are parents of children who are exhibiting these transgender traits, you know, so a little five-year-old boy who wants to dress in girl clothes and who wants to be called a girl name and who's playing with dolls and doing what typically a little girl would do or, or vice versa, you know? And so, and I think that there's even a more issue for, um, boys and there is for girls. Cause you know, if a girl wants to do boy things, there's a little bit more acceptance of that. You know, she's tomboyish or she's athletic or she's this or that, but for a boy who wants to, you know, wear a tutu and put on some, you know, high heels that, that I think love, you know, hires our anxiety as a culture. So is there anything that you would speak to those parents about as far as just helping them understand what, what they can do or what resources are available or approaches to this that would be healthy? Yeah. So, um, um, there are, you know, I mean, I think that, HRC has some resources. Um, I think um, PFLAG is one of the best places to go for resources for parents that are kind of dealing with these issues. Um, And I think that, but the, 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 the first thing I think is to really take seriously what's emerging for your son and daughter or daughter Um, that how they sometimes gender non-conforming um, kids are that it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're transgender. It, it, it can mean a whole lot of things, but it's, but in many cases it does. And I think that, that um, we have to stop seeing this as a illness or something that is wrong, but really like, I think the starting point is, is, to listen and to take very, very seriously what your child is telling you. That's the first step. The second step is to get support. It's a very, particularly with young people, it's a very, very complicated um, experience. And because gender is so ingrained in how we understand ourselves and each other, you need support to be able to work through that. You cannot simply trust yourself to un- to, to, to be to get it right. I mean, you've got to be able to get the support and there increasingly are, um, are, are networks of support that are out there that can, that can help folks. But it's, it's, um, I think listening and really taking seriously what, um, a young person is saying and how, how they are experiencing their, their gender is the most important thing, the most important thing. Um, and then also, I guess I would say that, if there is an experience of um, where that the young person is not is is bullied at their school or is experiencing um, discrimination by in by a teacher or at the congregation, that you want to you want to be careful about that and as best that you can sort of begin to educate the 
the, educate the educators. Unfortunately, parents are going to have to be in a position right now in this culture where they're going to have to be educating those that should be educating their own children because there's just not enough information out there and there's not enough awareness. But we need to be really, really careful to make sure that um, young people have a supportive as supportive as an environment as they can possibly have. Um, there's lots of good online resources. There's a wonderful, re- um, so actually a really wonderful resource for faith people called Trans Faith that's out there that um, gives all sorts of, of resources for people of faith that are struggling with this issue. So. Uh, but I, I think I, I can't emphasize enough the need to both listen, listen to what, what your child is telling you, and then get support. Get support for yourself and get support for, for your child. And to recognize that, that um, our notions of gender and this sort of gender binary system that we're in are so, so deeply ingrained. I don't think there's anything else that is as deeply ingrained. So we cannot, because that it's so deep in us, we can't work through it on our own. It's not, it's not really possible. We need a community to help us. So going back to a, a wider umbrella, are there any um, statistics or research that you would want our community to be aware of that affects um, Mormons and, and some of these issues that we've been talking about? Yeah, so I think, you know, there's been some good work that has been done. There's a, there's um, an organization called the Family Acceptance Project that's run by a woman named Caitlin, Dr. Caitlin Ryan, and she's done some marvelous work um, on, particularly with the LDS community recently. She's, she's, she's done work with all sorts of communities, but recently she's been working with the LDS community around how, around family acceptance and um, has these amazing kinds of uh, statistics around that I don't have it at my fingertips, but they're that accepting behavior absolutely will transform the emotional well-being, the physical well-being, the spiritual well-being of young people. Um, and even behavior that is mildly um, accepting, kind of like, I love you, even though I don't understand or accept this, but I love you nonetheless. At, is is completely transformative of the lives of of um, of, of young people, uh, and so I I just would encourage uh, your readers to check out uh, her work um, or your listeners, sorry, to check out her work, um, and then I think another thing I would point to, which is a a scary statistic that we really need to be addressing, is that in the in parts of the country. Uh, throughout the country, we have homelessness rates for LGBT youth are off the charts. So LGBT youth um, are that the, of the of the youth that are homeless, twenty to forty percent identify as LGBT. In places that have where there's a high concentration of Mormons, like. Um, uh, uh, Utah, for instance, that number is actually even above that. It's like it's it's hovering at forty one to forty two percent. That's just not acceptable. And I think we really need to to look at what is happening to our young people who are wrestling with their sexuality or their gender identity. Uh, I think it, 
those cases are sometimes those are cases of young people who have been literally kicked out of their house because their their parents or guardians just couldn't deal with their sexual orientation or gender identity. And sometimes it's because the atmosphere is so unbearable that they felt that they had to leave. So there's combinations of how, how this plays out is complicated, but we really need to be addressing this problem. We should not have numbers of, uh, I mean, homelessness is, is a horrific thing around, among youth to begin with. But when you have, um, you know, if, if the LGBT community hovers between 3 and 10%, depending on where we are, and then we have forty percent in places that um, that uh, of that uh, that uh, that are homeless that identify as LGBT. That's a problem. That's a real problem, and it should tell us some. It should it should give us all pause. Well, and it goes against our basic, our most basic Christian precepts to begin with. I mean, as well as acceptance and loving and helping those who need help. Um, yeah. Yes, that's right. That, and, and I think, I, I guess I would also say on that score that, you know, it's possible, and, and uh, I think um, uh, Dr. Caitlin Ryan's work kind of uh, holds us up, but it's very, it's, it's, you don't have to have worked it all out to be loving and supportive of an LGBT person. It's just, you don't have to have it worked all out. You don't have to have completely understand where you stand theologically on this. You don't have to be fully accepting of, of, um, the, 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 of, of, you know, a gay, lesbian, transgender son or daughter. Um, but you can be, you can be loving. You can listen carefully and deeply to what their lives are like. You can read and try to understand more about what 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 life is like for LGBT people in this country. You can um, you can find faith communities in, in in every every faith. There are communities of people that are wrestling with this. You can find support groups. You can find people that you can have deep theological conversations with, and that I think is the most probably the most important thing to do is like not to worry so much if you're facing this issue in your family about, you know, that, 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 that everything at first has to align. I think the first step is really to, to be deeply, deeply present with the people in your lives um, that are, are, are speaking to you and to, and to also to kind of, create an opening for people to be able to be holy themselves. There's something deeply, deeply spiritually um, fulfilling when somebody trusts someone enough to come out to them with whatever issue it is that they're dealing with. And that, that person that can hold that trust is um, they, they have been given an enormous gift uh, and, and people that have had people in their lives come out to them um, say this to me all the time that that's that that sometimes that feels like some of the most holy moments that they ever experience and they feel that they, they understand God's grace in their life when they are the recipient of somebody's somebody who is willing to be vulnerable enough to come out to them and I think that as 
uh, as a Christian, that's what I would want for for other Christians and for all people of faith to be able to sort of aspire to be the kind of person that somebody could feel that they could be they they could be fully human and fully themselves in your presence and not be n- not have to fear condemnation well, and one of the challenges that we have in in LDS culture is that our leadership is a lay leadership right so we don't have people who are necessarily trained in mental health or you know theology to be able to deal with these issues so it's so important for our bishops and young women's and young men's leaders and Relief Society presidents and all these people who really play such an integral role in the faith community of, of people's lives to be educated on these issues and to kind of, you know, welcome that challenge that you've just so beautifully stated. <clears throat> that's right. I think, I think that's really right. And I think that's the next horizon in the kind of work that we all need to be that that needs to be done in faith communities is that we need to be talking about the pastoral, the mental health issues, um, and 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 get ourselves trained and educated to do this work. I think that that's right. Now that we're at the end of the time that you have available for me, and I I really want to just thank you so much for for all this time that you spent with me. Is there? Is there anything I'm not asking or any closing thoughts that you'd like to speak to before you go? Hmm. I feel like I've kind of got it all out there. Um, so, um, hmm. well, maybe I would just say that if your listeners are, um, if, if this is an interest of passion to your listeners and they want to um, explore more what they can do, either politically or um, in their congregation or with their families, that they should feel free to contact us. We can be reached at um, the, the general email is just hrc.org. You can go to the website hrc.org slash religion. Uh, and you can reach us that way. Or my email is just Sharon.Groves at HRC.org. And I would be happy to um, to hear from people. Well, Dr. Groves, the- thank, thanks again for your time. I, I very much appreciate you coming on. This, this information I think is really invaluable. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Mormon Mental Health. To discuss this episode, please check us out at mormonmentalhealth.org keep the podcast alive, please consider a donation today, again, at mormonmentalhealth.org. Logo was provided by Daniel Singer. Music was generously donated by Lower Lights. Please check them out at thelowerlights.com. And thanks for listening. Jesus saved